You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you'd uh, turn to 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. While you're turning there, I want to read a card that James slipped me uh, just before church, and a uh, uh, well-written card of thanks and uh, their love for you all as you all have loved on them through the last few weeks. And I'll post it as well out in the hallway, but I wanted to read it to you as well. It says, to our church family, we take comfort in knowing that we have a church family that will faithfully pray and support us in difficult times. The love, prayers, calls, texts, and visits made such a huge difference for Judy. The love we have for all of you runs deep in our heart and souls. We love you all, James and Judy. And James and Judy, I say, I think I say speak for everybody when it's great to see you all here today uh, this this morning. 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 12, we are going to finish up our Advent series today since we didn't get to do so last week and uh, as James was reading earlier before we wrote the candle, the, the issue of the Advent Christ Sunday is this, that in Christ all of the peace and the hope and the love and the joy is fulfilled in him. And then what the Bible teaches that is that through him in us, we then become all those things to people, or we should become all those things to people. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so what we're going to learn today from Peter's words here in 1 Peter 2 is understanding this idea, this language that he uses of living stones and the cornerstone and us being holy priests and that uh, we are designed to then be the presence of Christ in people's lives. So 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 12, we're going to read that entire passage and then just pluck out a couple of sections in it for our message today, but follow along with me. If you will, Peter writes, you're coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you're his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy... Now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. 
Out of this passage, we're really going to focus in two places today, verses 4 and 5 and verses 9 and 10. And I've titled this message, Living Stones and Holy Priests to Display God's Presence. Verses 4 and 5 talk about what it means to be a living stone and a holy priest. And it begins with the understanding of who Jesus is. And it calls him the cornerstone, the living cornerstone. Uh, I've got an image that they're going to show up on the screen up here behind me. And it's one I just picked up off the internet. But cornerstone uh, imagery or understanding is this. Uh, In architecture, the cornerstone is that first stone that is laid or that is set. And from that cornerstone, all the other walls get built, all the other floors develop. Uh, It begins to create the foundation for that building. Oftentimes, uh, the cornerstone in architecture also orients the direction of the building, north to south, east to west, and so on and so forth. And so in architecture, if your cornerstone is off, the rest of the building's off as well. If it's, if it's off a few degrees, if it's not perfectly square, if it's not perfectly hewn to the right standards, then the remainder of the building is going to be off as well. So it's very important that the cornerstone is set and set perfectly. And so Jesus is described here as the living cornerstone in verse 4. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. In the Old Testament, the Lord God, Yahweh, is often referred to in this sort of same terminology. In Deuteronomy 32.4, he is the rock, his deeds are perfect, everything he does is fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong, how just and upright he is. In Isaiah 17, Isaiah is, de- is describing and explaining the coming judgment that's going to come on Damascus. And he gives part of the reason for it here. Because you have turned from the God who can save you. You have forgotten the rock who can hide you. And why is that important for us to look at Old Testament passages that talk about the Lord God being the rock? Well, because the Messiah, as God, then begins to take on that same sort of terminology. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 15, Isaiah writes this as a call to trust the Lord. Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. Don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. But to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a a trap and a snare. Many will stumble and fall, never to rise again. They will be snared and captured. Now you might say, well, why? what does that have to do with Jesus? What does it have to do that Isaiah says in chapter 8 that the Lord is going to be like one who causes people to stumble and fall? Well, because in chapter 2 of Luke, we were there last week looking at the words of Simeon when he receives the infant child in the temple. And I didn't read this last week because I was holding on to it for this week. But in Luke 2, in beginning verse 33, after he says what he says about Jesus, Luke records, Jesus' parents were amazed by what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to call many, cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. In other words, Simeon goes back into Isaiah 8 and the language of Isaiah 8 and applies that to the infant child who we now understand was Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Another place in the Old Testament, Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It's wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We've already seen where Peter uses that same phraseology in this passage of verses 4 through 12. But Jesus in Matthew 21 uses that same understanding out of Psalm 118 to describe himself. When Peter is giving his, his speech before the council in Acts 4, he talks there in the same understanding from Psalm 118 that Jesus is the cornerstone. So we've got to understand that when Peter writes this, when all the scriptures point to this, what they are saying is Jesus is the stone from which everything else flows. It's fine to study the ecclesiology of Peter. It's fine to study the theology of Paul. It's fine to study the wisdom of James. It's fine to take all of God's word and ingest it and, to, and have it be found in our heart and our minds and our soul. But it's all through the lens of Jesus because he is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone from which everything else comes. And so what Peter says here in verses 4 and 5 again is this. You're coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor in verse 5. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. Living stones, it's metaphorical language, but it's, it's language that would talk about a, a stone or a rock that was being shaped for a specific purpose uh, in a specific shape for a specific way of building. And so Jesus, the living cornerstone, from him, those who have faith and trust in him become living stones shaped for a purpose. And what we see here in Peter's writings today is really the purpose is two parts. And the first part is what we just read. Living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. That phrasing spiritual temple is pretty unique to Peter. But Paul in his writings picks up on this same kind of understanding. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul talks about that we are, we are individually now the temple of God because of the Holy Spirit dwells within us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, this is the way Paul reads, uh, writes it. You Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You're members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, even you Gentiles are being made part of the dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So individually, we are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells within each individual person. But then collectively, we are being built up into God's spiritual temple. And here are the implications of this. I believe there are two. Number one is this. If we are being built up into a spiritual temple, then we need to rethink what it means to consider where God's dwelling place is. I'm not against church buildings. I'm grateful we have a church building. I'm grateful we have a church building that's paid off. But understand, the building was never front and center to the New Testament believer. 
There, there was no structure that was front and center to the new covenant that had been displayed through Jesus Christ and the new grace that was being poured out through Christ into the world. It was the presence of God through Jesus Christ, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that took front and center to the New Testament believer. And so God's dwelling place, as beautiful as many churches are, is not in the church. It's in you. It's in me. It's in us collectively as a spiritual temple that God is doing what he is doing. And so one of the things we must understand is that means that God's presence goes with us everywhere we go. The idea of coming to church is really a phrase we need to get out of our minds. We should say things like we're coming to worship or we're coming to study or we're coming to gather, but we're not coming to church because we are the church. We are the spiritual temple because the Spirit of God is living within us. As I was preparing and thinking through the Advent series for this year, part of my inspiration came from a book by a pastor named David Fitch. He's also a professor uh, up in the Chicago area. And he wrote a book a few years ago called Faithful Presence, Seven Disciplines That Shape the Church for Mission. And this is one of the things he says in his introduction. Several years ago, I started going to a McDonald's in my neighborhood. And there, early in the morning, I would drink coffee, grade papers, do research, have meetings, and do other things that pastors and professors do. But a friend eventually challenged me to see this local McDonald's as the arena of God's spirit at work. Instead of seeing it merely as a place to do my own work, instead of even seeing the hundreds of people that pass by as a candidate for a come-to-Jesus evangelism speech, I was challenged to see this as a vibrant arena where God was truly present. I was encouraged to enter this place peacefully, be present with every person who came my way, pay attention to all that was going, around, going on around me, and to tend to God's presence here. God in a McDonald's. That, that, that becomes, if you read through the rest of his book, he talks about the fact that once he began to do that, once he began to view that McDonald's as the place where God's presence was by virtue of God's presence being with him, then he began to see God's kingdom at work in the McDonald's. See, it was no longer just about coffee and a McMuffin. It became about places where he had encounters with people, spiritual encounters with people. It became a place where he saw people receive healing. It became a place where he saw people have families become reconciled. It became a place where he saw addicts lifted up out of the depths because he looked at that place and said, this is God's presence because I am hearing God's presence is with me. And God's presence is the way that he changes the world. We, we just sang Emmanuel, God with us, which means that he's not just with us from 11 o'clock to 12.15 on Sunday mornings in this location. He is with us wherever we go. And so the implication of being a living stone, being, being uh, built into a spiritual temple is that we must begin to rethink and reformulate our understanding of where God's presence is. Secondly, it's this, that we must begin to understand and emphasize the importance of spiritual unity, not only among fellow believers in our local congregation, but among fellow believers in every congregation. Look, if you will, there at 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, if you've got your Bibles open. 
This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I, I did some work and did some comparisons. Those five provinces named there are in what is called today modern-day Turkey. They're in that area of the world. And so I took a, a map of the New Testament times where those provinces were located, and I kind of overlaid it to a map of Turkey today. And if, if, my, if my figuring is correct, those five provinces made up roughly 60 to 70% of what is today modern-day Turkey. Okay? Now just track with me for a moment, all right? You might say, well, how big is modern-day Turkey? Well, the only state comparison I could give was this. Turkey as a country is about 16% larger than Texas. So if you, want to, if you want to envision Texas in your mind, Turkey's about 16% larger than that. And so what that means is Paul was writing to believers in five different locations in what would now be called Turkey. And if he were writing the same letter today, let's say to the state of Texas, or Peter, if he was writing the same letter today to the state of Texas, he might say something like this, to the believers in Dallas, in Houston, in San Antonio, El Paso, and Amarillo. And if you know those cities on that map, your mind's immediately going, man, that is a huge section. <laughs> that is a huge chunk of land. This is important because Peter's not writing to a church in a city and saying, you're being built up into a spiritual temple. He's writing to all the believers in five different provinces saying, all of you together are being built up into a spiritual temple before God of which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Why is this important? Because there's lots of things that we often point to. Why it doesn't seem that God's presence is with us as a nation much anymore. Why it doesn't seem like we have God's favor, so on and so forth. I can tell you if Peter's writing is correct, one of the biggest reasons is that the spiritual temple of God that's been built up is broken. Because instead of God's people in different provinces, in different cities, in different towns, instead of us being together and working together, we're in competition with one another. And we leave one church and go to another, and then we talk bad about the church we've been to, and then we talk bad about the church we go to, and then we go somewhere else, and we do this, and we have all this infighting and have all this discussion among one another, and, and we're not coming together. And the cornerstone is Jesus, which is unity in Christ, and the church is not experiencing it. And Peter is very plain. You in these five provinces are being built up together. Now, I, I'm not advocating, I never have advocated, that we partner with or, or go side by side with someone who doctrinally is not sound. But if they are doctrinally sound, we ought to be coming together more than we are. And sometimes when we talk like that, we say, yeah, well, we'll just wait for them to make the first move. Why? What would it look like in 2023 in Franklin County if we made the first move? What would it look like in 2023 in Franklin County if little bitty Providence Baptist Church said to all the churches who were right-minded doctrinally through the scriptures of understanding the truth of the gospel, if we said to them, hey, we'd like to invite you all to do things with us. Oh, that, that might be tough, wouldn't it? 
Because in a lot of those cases, we'd have to have some serious reconciliation, wouldn't we? But is that not what God is all about? Did he not send his son to reconcile us to him? To move the past away from us and to set us forward on a future with him? What would it look like for this area for us to say to fellow believers in Christ, we are all one spiritual temple in God? Can we join together in this coming year for prayer, for mission, for service, for work, for worship? He also refers to us there in those passages in verses 4 and 5 and then again in verse 9 that we are holy priests, that we are royal priests. Some of you have remembered it or some of your translations say that we are a priesthood of believers. And understand this is consistent with God's plan throughout the scriptures. In Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6, he has rescued them from, from Egypt. He has brought them out. He's beginning to give them instructions. And he says to Israel at that point, I will make you a kingdom of priests. Now, were there priests that did specific jobs and things? Yes, there were. But God's intent was not that there would be one group of holy people and then everybody else could just do whatever they wanted. He said, my goal for you is to be a kingdom of priests. My goal for you is to be a reflection of the holiness that I have, that all people would reflect and, and replicate the holy character of God. And so Peter picks up on that same understanding here in verse 5. You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. And through the mediation of Jesus Christ, he says, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Notice how he said it, through the mediation of Christ. Uh, some of your translations say things like spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God only through or by Jesus Christ. The intention really is this, that what Peter is saying is that the spiritual sacrifices that we offer are only acceptable to God by those who offer them who are in Christ. Let me just put it this way real, real plainly. An unbeliever can come in here. And they can know the words and know the songs and, and know the words and sing along, but they're not offering a spiritual sacrifice of worship. They're just singing. If you're familiar with the story in John 4 and the Samaritan woman, right? The Samaritan woman says to Jesus, well, you say we're supposed to worship over there. My people say we're supposed to worship over there. And Jesus says, I'll tell you how you're supposed to worship in spirit and truth. That the time is coming and has now come when those are the worshipers God seeks. And so an unbeliever can come in and sing, but they're not offering a spiritual sacrifice of worship to God. They can come in and drop a check in the offering plate, but they're not offering a spiritual sacrifice of tithing and giving. They can travel to faraway lands and build homes and schools and septic systems and everything else for people in need, but they're not offering a spiritual sacrifice of good works to the kingdom because it's not accepted to God because it's not done through Jesus Christ. Only those who are by, uh, accepted the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is our spiritual sacrifice accepted to God. And he says, you are these royal priests. You know, the other idea of the priest is that he has access. Right? The Old Testament priest had access to the innermost parts of the temple, to where the presence of God was. In Christ, 
All are now priests, which means all now have access. Uh, I, I don't know how many times I've said this over the last, well, I'll, I'll say 20 plus years because I haven't just said it here. I've said it in other churches. But I don't ever mind to pray for a meal. I don't ever mind to pray for you. I don't ever mind to come share the gospel with someone in need that you asked me to. But understand, I'm not any more of a priest than you. You, by virtue of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and you, by virtue of being having faith and trust in Christ and being saved by him, you are as much of a priest in God's kingdom according to the word of God through Peter as I am. And, and somewhere, somewhere in our church culture, we've missed that. Somewhere in our church culture, we've begun to relegate all the activity and all the important spiritual things back to the people who are paid to do those things. That's not biblical. You are a priest unto God's holy, living, spiritual temple. And your prayers have just as much authority as mine. Your words of sharing the gospel have just as much authority as mine. Your work for the kingdom has just as much authority as mine. There is no classification to this in the scriptures. Has God designated roles within the church? Yes. In Ephesians 4, he talks about that God's given apostles and preachers and teachers and, and evangelists and so forth. But in that passage in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, Paul writes, He's done so that they might equip the church for the work of the ministry. Not that he's been given those, they've been given those roles to do it all themselves. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, if you want to look it up this week, that God has done so in the form and the life of the church that they might equip the church for the work of ministry. And two things have to happen there. One, there has to be equippers. And two, there has to be people wanting to be equipped. And as a priest... In the spiritual temple of God, as a living stone being constructed in the spiritual temple of God, you should want to be equipped. We're not a social club. We're not people who pay dues to play golf where other people can't play golf. We're not people who utter secret handshakes and, and secret words and phrases so we can gain access into doors and buildings that others can't. We are all priests together in a kingdom invited to partake of the glorious nature of God through the Son and the Spirit as we are built up into his living temple. We're done so. Look at verses 9 and 10. God does this that we might display Jesus. He, he prefaces in verse 8, 7 and 8, talking about those who have rejected the stone. That is just language that they've rejected Jesus. They don't obey God's word about the Messiah. But he says in verse 19, you, meaning everyone who has trusted in Jesus, you are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result... You can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Living stones and holy priests to display Jesus. This is the second part of the purpose that Peter's trying to get us, get us to understand here. We're built into a spiritual temple, and there's two main points for verses 9 and 10. One is this, identity. Your identity as a son or daughter of God through Jesus Christ, is that you are a son or daughter of God through Jesus Christ. 
For the Christian, every earthly identity is secondary to that identity. It doesn't mean you stop being a lawyer. It doesn't mean you stop being a doctor. It doesn't mean you stop being a truck driver. It doesn't mean you stop being a homemaker. It doesn't mean you stop being a retiree. It doesn't mean you stop any of those things. But wherever it is in your life that you have come to Jesus Christ and that he has saved you, your identity is now first and foremost God's people over everything else. You are now a Christian lawyer, a Christian doctor, a Christian homemaker, a Christian school teacher, a Christian student. Because what Peter says is you are God's people. And again, this is language carried over from the Old Testament. Exodus 6, 7, when he's getting ready to rescue them, he says through Moses, I will claim you as my people. Jeremiah 30, 22, he's talking to the prophet. He says, you will be my people. I will be your God. The identity of Israel was that they belonged to God. Understand this, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, it's the first place in the Bible when God makes his covenant with Abraham that Abraham's called the Hebrew. Abraham the Hebrew. You know what the word Hebrew means? Sojourner, traveler, essentially one without a home. Later on, Jacob has his name changed to Israel. He wrestles with God. He goes through all night. God changes his name to Israel. And from Jacob then begins the descendants that were promised to Abraham that eventually become the nation of Israel. But even when it's changed to Israel, even when Jacob's name is changed to Israel, Israel has no identity. They have no boundaries. They have no geography they can lay claim to. They don't even have a culture. They're nomads. They're wanderers. They're sojourners. It's what Hebrew means. And it's not until God rescues them and pulls them out of Egypt by his mighty hand that he then says, I declare for you, you are my people. When God rescues you, when he pulls you from the rapture of sin, when he pulls you from the penalty of sin, when he pulls you from the power of sin, our identity now mirrors that of Israel's. Our identity is found in the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and not in anything else. Our identity is to mirror them, and our identity is that we are chosen in Christ. We're priests with access to God. We have the holiness of Jesus Christ, and we are God's people. And then secondary then is this, that we have a purpose. Look again there at the end of verse 9. As a result, as a result of being God's people, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Some translations will say things like you can declare or proclaim the praises or the excellencies, but no matter the English translation, the intent is the same. The purpose of those who are called God's people, the purpose of those who have been saved, the purpose of those who are priests, who are living stones being built up in a spiritual temple, your purpose is to display the glorious nature of Jesus. Again, any earthly purpose that you may have, and it's okay to have other earthly purposes, but they are all secondary to the displaying of Jesus Christ in your life. It is no great secret that the Southern Baptist Convention is in a downward spiral. For the last, I believe, 14 or 15 years, we've been bleeding members from the convention right and left. It is also no great surprise that we can correlate that fact with these findings less than 20 percent of southern baptists say they've ever shared jesus with anybody 
You want me to just let that one resonate for a minute? Less than 20% of Southern Baptists say they've ever shared Jesus with anybody. Less than 40% of Southern Baptists say they've ever even invited another unbeliever to a church activity or to a church worship service. What are we displaying? What are we proclaiming? It sure doesn't seem to be the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. Our purpose, folks, as priests, your purpose is that God is everything. Is that your identity in him is greater than any earthly identity you can ever have or claim for yourself or be given to yourself. That your purpose is in him and his kingdom work is greater than any earthly purpose you might ever pull off for yourself. When God was talking with, through Isaiah in Isaiah 43 about Old Testament Israel, he said, I have made Israel for myself, and they will someday honor me before the whole world. Fellow brother and sister in Christ, in Christ, God has made you for himself. And he's made you for the purpose to display, to proclaim his excellencies. The word there actually means to advertise. To advertise the excellent nature of he who has called you out of darkness into light. One of our focus points for 2023 is going to be evangelism. If that makes you uncomfortable, go on and start praying about it. Because there are two ways the church of Jesus Christ rebounds. There are two ways the church of Jesus Christ begins to again see influence. There are two ways the church of Jesus Christ again becomes victorious in a fallen world. It is prayer and it is evangelism doesn't mean we don't have programs. It doesn't mean we don't have events. It doesn't mean we don't have other things that help us to engage in the culture and the community. But it means that everything else is subjugated to those two things. How much we're praying individually and together and how much we're sharing our faith individually and together. And every great movement of God anywhere in the world has come about by those two things. It has not come about by conferences it has not come about by changing worship styles. It has not come about by changing the way you dress. Every great movement of God has come from prayer and sharing faith, which is what Peter is saying here, that in our lives we display the goodness of him who has called us. Today we're going to remember the cross of Christ. And the challenge that I want to give you today is this. What do you really think the cross did for you? See, if we, if, if we hold to this kind of surface level, inch deep belief that, well, it means I get to go to heaven instead of going to hell, then we miss everything that Peter just said. 
If we, if we just look at it as saying that when I, when I remember today and I remember that which represents the bread and that which represents the body and that which represents the blood and the forgiveness, if, if that is what he did just to secure me a get-out-of-hell-free card and that's all it is, then we've just thrown away everything that Peter has just told us. Matter of fact, we could really just throw away about 98% of the Bible. And just hold on to about five or six scriptures that talk about those things. But what the cross has done, it has saved you. It has called you out of darkness into light. It has called you into being a living stone connected to the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. It has called you to be a holy priest with access to God. It has called you to be a holy priest to have the display of God in your life. It has called you and me, to live a life where we advertise the greatness of Jesus. And so today, in just a moment, as you prepare to take it, I want you to think about that. What do you give thanks for for the cross today? And then secondly, I would, in, I would encourage you and challenge you to do this. As you prepare, give thanks for the identity and purpose that you have in Jesus. Not only give thanks for that, but pray to God today. Offer up God prayers today and then tomorrow and then the next day and the next day and the next day through this year that you would be a person who displays the goodness of the one who's called you from darkness to light. That you would find your McDonald's. You would find your arena. And you'd begin to dedicate that to the presence and the power of God. And that God might begin to do a work through you, his holy priesthood, living stones being, being built into the spiritual temple of God. He might do a work that allows you and me to be the presence of Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.